You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We are continuing through uh, our sermon series called Living Hope. It is about the hope that uh, Christians have that is alive and found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've already uh, managed to make our way all the way through the book of 1 Peter since the new year, and here we are in 2 Peter already, which is a much shorter book. I'm not sure if you've, if you've uh, heard someone say this type of thing to you before, but perhaps you have. You know, it's a popular question to say, well, you know, if today was, if today was your last, what would you do? You know, if, you're, if you knew that your life were to suddenly be over, or if the end was near or whatever, how would you spend your time? Uh, what would you say? What would you do? Another way of asking it is, uh, you know, what, what is your legacy, right? What's your legacy that you'll leave behind? And uh, this isn't my question for you guys this morning. It's also not necessarily Peter's question for us. But it is something that, as Peter speaks, and we're going to hear soon from him, um, it is a question that he, that he himself is concerned with. It's a question that's on his mind. He, he's aware that his life is short, that his, the words that he has to share with us will um, have an impact. He wants them to have an impact because he sees them as, as his last, possibly. This is kind of his, this is the legacy that Peter wants to leave with the church. And so, as we read, um, as we read Second Peter, we'll find that it's, um, it's an intense book, right? The tone and the, and the words and the way that he speaks and whatnot. It's, it's a very, the tone is, is pretty intense, you know, it's not lighthearted. And um, so I find it helpful to, to have this in mind, right? That, that Peter's kind of faced with um, the idea that his life is indeed um, temporary and possibly that it will be over soon. And so if he has one more thing to say to Christians, it's this collection that, uh, that we started a couple of weeks ago and, and we'll continue. There's more, you know, obviously we're not finishing the book today either, so... Um, if it sounds heavy, that's because it is, you know, he's passionately convicted of what he's sharing with the Christians. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to uh, turn with me to second Peter. We're still in chapter one. You can also read along on the projector there. Verses 12 to 21. This is Peter speaking, saying, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, which Greg preached on last week, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, for when, sorry, for when he received 
honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, you have blessed us this morning as we're here together. All of us come from different places, and yet we're here able to worship and pray and sit here now with with your word. Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you would move and speak to us. And God, that you would be blessed by all that I say here now. God, we love you and we're thankful for this time and for your presence with us here. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read in verses 12 to 15, um, Peter says that he knows he'll die soon, right? Um, Pitch the tent, so to speak. And so he, he wants to make every effort that he can to remind Christians of what they know, of what they already know, and that he's reminded them of. He wants to continue to do that so that Christians will continue to live it out. Right? He knows that knowledge is really only valuable when it's put into practice. And so Peter says he wants to stir up his listeners into a life that is continually shaped by what they know, by what he shared with them, by what they've uh, seen and heard about the glory of Jesus. So the idea is that, yes, uh, we're, we're saved when we hear and believe the good news of Jesus, but we're uh, required to pick that up each and every day. Right to to use the the word as a means of continuing to live the truth that we've been given, not just um, know it, you know, in our heads or or use it as some kind of uh, thing that we prop up and and leave. No, it's a, it's a it's he says it's a lamp, it's a light that shines. Right, it's a thing to be used day in day out in order to fulfill the calling that we have as Christians to live God honoring lives. So that's the first few verses, kind of continuing, like I said, from from Greg's sermon last week about Christian um, attributes and and all that. And now, uh, having said, you know, my life is going to be over soon, as as the Lord has made clear to me, um, he has some things to say. In verses 16 to 21, uh, Peter addresses uh, concern or criticism that is as old as Christianity itself. Okay, so he goes right for the for the very most central uh, criticism right off the bat. And Peter is arguing against those who accuse him and others, uh, the church leaders, of simply inventing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an accusation that we are... Um, very familiar with aren't we it's like i said it's it's one that's been alive and well since the very beginning but it's never gone away 
You know, there are questions that we're familiar with, whether they're from the outside and from other people, or perhaps they, they plague us in our own minds, in our own doubts. Questions like, what if, you know, this Jesus business is just made up? Right? What if the Bible is a fairy tale? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Is he really the son of God? Or are Christians um, following some kind of lie? Can all of this be true or is it too good to be true? Is it ultimately just a myth, you know, a nice story, perhaps with lessons, but nothing more? Is there anything more than that? It's familiar, isn't it? This is this is the center. This is the core that can uh, essentially dismantle everything, right? If if the people who accuse that, that Peter is responding to, if what they say is true, then all of this is for naught. And it reminds me of what Paul says in First Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians, in regards to this: that if our Christian hope is not true and alive, Christians are indeed a people to feel sorry for. Uh, let's read Second Corinthians 15:12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not being raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. So you see how, how Peter, uh, why Peter would take this to task at the beginning of, of this uh, list of concerns that he wants to refute to the church. Because the legitimacy of Christianity is completely uh, dismantled and taken apart if Jesus is not who he says he was. If Jesus is not the Son of God and if he didn't die and rise from the grave to save people from their sins. And Peter knows this. His teachings would be obsolete if this wasn't true. So off the bat, this is what he talks about. He defends what he preaches um, kind of in two different ways. I guess he takes two avenues of, of defending the, the reality of Jesus and his ministry and life, and he shares them with us. So I'm going to uh, talk about those two things uh, for a few moments here. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not, a, it's not a logical and technical series of proofs, you know, for, for Jesus' death and resurrection. That would be, well, he just doesn't go there. I, don't, I think he knows that he can't. But he does give us two good and reasonable um, uh, reasons to accept or at least consider what he's been teaching okay so the first is his testimony um, his experience on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured 
Okay? So he talks about the transfiguration, uh, which for those who are unfamiliar, um, it's an event that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus was on a mountain with three of his disciples, and where God spoke audibly to confirm that Jesus is the Son of God with whom he was well pleased, as, as Peter spoke. Um, so let's read just one account of the transfiguration. I'm reading from Luke 9. It's verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, uh, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James. And they went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who are from the Old Testament, who appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw that his glory and these two men stood with him. And as the, man, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came, overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen son. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Okay, so this is the account uh, from Luke's Gospel of the Transfiguration on the mountain, which is a very significant moment in, in the life of Jesus, right? And, and it goes, the, the implications continue forward for the rest of his ministry on earth. Something that I wanted to point out about his uh, Peter's sharing about the transfiguration, though, that I find interesting, was that uh, the transfiguration was uh, not an event that Peter had just uh, heard about, you know, read about, or perhaps been taught about, or studied, or something. This was something that uh, Peter himself witnessed. He was an eyewitness to what he's sharing with us. He was, he, he was there. He experienced the manifest presence of God, right? They were terrified. And they experienced that, and they heard God declaring who Jesus was. So for Peter and for James and for John, the transfiguration, which we look back on and read about, it was, it was not an idea. It was not something abstract or historical, right? This is a memory that Peter has of Jesus Christ. It's a memory that he has in treasures, of his of his Lord and Savior. So what Peter's doing then is extending this. He's handing he's, he has it in his hands and he's holding it out, right? For it's a memory of his own. He's holding it out for us to examine uh, and to behold. Because if what Peter reminds his readers of actually happened, he wants them to know that they can accept Jesus for who he says he is, the glorious Son of God, majesty, right? Not a myth. Now what this makes me think about further is the value of, of doing what Peter has just done. 
Okay, the value of of remembering and knowing and then sharing the moments in our lives as Christians where God was undeniably at work, where God is undeniably in our midst or moving powerfully, where we've experienced, you know, the touch of his hand or the change that he's made in our lives, things like this. Not to equate um, yours or mine experience with the transfiguration because they're different things. But like I said before, this is, um, this is not something that Peter just knows about. It's, it is something that he was there for and experienced and that he's accounting for firsthand And I believe that this is a a powerful means of of sharing the validity and reality of Jesus and the gospel with our friends and neighbors, right? Talking about what we know and what we have experienced, okay? We do well to mimic Peter's way of, of witnessing to people. To those who say that Jesus is just a myth, you know, Peter argues that no, Jesus is, was not a myth at all, but his majesty is something that he had seen, that he felt and heard and experienced and trembled at as God came and spoke. Peter had seen and heard the glory of God speak about his son Jesus, and he shares it as a defense for his faith. So, here we are this morning. If you're a Christian, I want you to remember the points in your life where you have experienced God at work in significant ways, right? Perhaps miraculous and amazing ways. And if you struggle to, if nothing comes to mind, well, keep thinking about it, you know, pray about it. Um, Keep thinking about it and ask the Holy Spirit to bring these things to you that you can have as a means of sharing with other people, whether they believe or or not, right? As a way of sharing the... Um, the work of God in your own life. Like I said before, this is not necessarily a way to prove to any particular person, um, you know, that God is real. It's not a debate necessarily, but it is a way nonetheless to be open and honest and real about what God has, you know, redeemed in your life, how He's changed you, and, and so on. And it's powerful. And we should do this. We should share with one another, with Christians, but also when the opportunity is there, this is a, a good way to start a conversation, you know, and witness about, about the gospel and the good news, in, just like uh, Peter is doing here for the church. Now, some of us are probably already wondering if I'm suggesting that that we just rely on on the experiences that we have as the guiding principle for our faith, right? Or that we try to communicate God only insofar as we can subjectively and so on and so on. Peter is one step ahead already because he has shared his own experience, but... Uh, when he, he moves on from talking about the eyewitness account, and then he, he, he talks about uh, the word, right? About the, the uh, prophecies and about scripture. Um, let's read again, uh, 19 to 21. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, we, we, we are to share what we know and have experienced, you know, in our, our faith with one another and as well as with unbelievers. But those things are all the more confirmed or, or even overshadowed by the prophecies of Scripture which Jesus has given way to fulfill through his life and death and resurrection. So Peter, Peter wants us to pay attention first to his, you know, first-hand account, and it's very powerful, but then he says right after that, pay close attention to the written word. Pay close attention to the written word. The Bible, like I said, or like he said, and I want to remind us, it's a lamp that's lit, right? we, We are to use it to shine in the darkness. A lamp is no good if it's if it's not used, if it's just set and we wander away from it and leave it there, right? We are to hold it and carry it with us and use it to, to illuminate the dark world as we move in it, to show the way and to show other people the way as well. The fulfillment of, of the, 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 prof, the prophetic, you know, more fully confirmed brings me to... Um, what I think is one of the most profound themes of scripture, which is that Jesus is at the core. Jesus is the unifying theme of the entirety of the Bible, right? Um, it's not just the Old Testament, which is over here, and then Jesus and the New Testament over there, and we're somehow supposed to, you know, mix and mingle them in a confusing way. No, it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is leading up to Christmas, Right? It's ramping up to, to when Jesus comes to earth and lives the life that he did. They're completely connected, and Jesus is the connection. Jesus himself speaks to this. And we should pay attention to what he says when he talks about the Old Testament. He came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so Peter does not want us to relax, you know, on the commandments, so to speak, of the Old Testament, because he heard Jesus say these things, and he knows the the value of of the word which led up to Jesus' life, and how Jesus illuminates it all, connects it all. Furthermore, I think he refers back to Scripture as a way of saying, okay, so you know I've shared what I've experienced, but maybe you don't believe that. However, if Jesus was a myth then why and how is he so incredibly interwoven into the whole uh, entirety of Scripture, right? A mere man would be not even close to capable of fulfilling the law and the prophets in the way that we can observe in Scripture if we do pay close attention. It would be impossible for someone to to be born and and then when they were old enough to think this way to decide for themselves you know what i want to be the messiah i want to fulfill um you know the thousand year old tradition of of everything as well as 
you know, my death and all that, I want, to, I want that to fulfill. No, that's, that would be totally impossible for a man to do on his own if he were just a normal guy trying to construct something. Okay? Even if they tried their best, they wouldn't come close to how Jesus has uh, fulfilled what he did. So we're supposed to, you know, share the gospel as we know it in our own lives and experiences. But um, if we're if we're copying Peter in his defense, we are also to, you know, use the Bible as as the the basic uh, as the base and the structure um, as we look into it and are and are pointed back to Christ again and again and again and again as He's revealed. Uh, through the word, through the Holy Spirit as we read it, right? So then in the last, uh, the last verse, uh, 21, uh, Peter speaks about the, uh, the prophets again. This is kind of a final response to, in his series of, uh, defenses because, you know, he said, well, you can believe because I've experienced this. And some people say, well, no, because that's just what you've experienced. And then he says, well, okay, let's open it up to the, to the whole of, of scriptures. And you can look there and believe because of what you, you know, can see as, uh, as you see Christ in the word. But then to that, there are those who would say, well, sure, fine. But the word itself is just um, also invented by humans it's just a myth like you know what's in there is meaningless because it's just words from people like how can that prove uh, the glory of christ so in verse 21 he speaks to that he teaches and he says that people were moved by god to speak what god had purposed for them to say right the prophets he says they were carried by the Spirit. It's like a sailboat, right? Um, where God's Spirit is the wind and, and the prophet is, is there as the boat and, and he simply raises the sails and, and then the will of God and the Word of God is, is what carries the boat forward and accomplishes what he would have it do. The prophets didn't just, you know, say what they felt like saying. They were saying the word of God to their people. Paul agrees with Peter in saying this. Um, Paul teaches in Second Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and so on. Okay, so in summary, as I said at the beginning... With Peter's last words to his readers, he, he wants them to know and to remember that they aren't just following a fairy tale, right? He, he, he compares Jesus as myth to Jesus, the majesty of Jesus that he knows and preaches. And he says, no, this is true. This is true. Pay attention to it. Use it. Be guided by it. Right? Don't believe those who complain that Jesus is made up, constructed, 
irrelevant, false teacher, or so on, because those accusations are there. They were there in Peter's time. They're here with us today, right? We hear these things often, and Peter encourages us to not fall for it, right? Our hope is alive. It's resurrected. It's proven by what he witnessed in, in his own time with Jesus. But it's also proven by the the truly miraculous presence of Jesus throughout the prophets and his fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament and, and all of it. Okay, so, so Peter's pointing us to a path that we can follow, right, with faith, a way that we can walk with our faith to see that Jesus is the answer, that he is majestic, he's the Son of God, he's the answer to both history and eternity that Jesus was destined by God to deliver his people back to him and to restore, restore creation to its glory. That this will happen, that Jesus is not a myth. Our faith is confirmed, right, by the testimony and by the way that Jesus ties the whole thing together as we read and pay close attention uh, to what's in the word. And he encourages us, in these things as well, to show us that we are not simply just to um, hear what he teaches and then know it, right? But to actually continually uh, act it out and be motivated by it and and use the the gospel in our lives and be shaped by it and show it to others and to live with hope, Okay. Um, I'll invite the band back up now. For communion this morning, I wanted to share from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, where um, it speaks about Jesus and his, and his uh, sacrifice on the cross. But it's spoken in terms of of Old Testament things, of the law which Jesus completed and fulfilled. And, and, and it quotes this, uh, prophecies from the Psalms which Jesus spoke as the fulfillment for. I'm going to read from Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offerings, since worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me. In the scroll of the book. 
Jesus' sacrificial death for sins is the will of God on display. In the cross, our sins are removed from us by a means which God the Father provides in the death of his Son, right? To make an end to the ritual sacrifices which were just a shadow of the fullness of what Jesus would do in his sacrifice and accomplishment on the cross. Because, as it said in Hebrews, nothing we could do can actually remove our sin away from us and make us holy before God, right? This is why Jesus' sacrifice had to be made for us. This is why we come to the cross each week. We have an opportunity to to repent, to pray, to be humble uh, before God in light of the cross and, and the weight of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins and, and to give thanks and rejoice and wonder you know, at his love for us and what he did and to accept it and to say yes to Jesus and his sacrifice. If you've never accepted Jesus, I encourage you to take this opportunity today to do that to come to the cross to find forgiveness and to find the perfect love of God there we have a life of hope because of the work that Jesus accomplished there for us